ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring an episode from Ufahamu Africa, a podcast featuring interviews and discussions about life and politics on the African continent. In just a minute, we're going to play one of their latest episodes where they explore the question about whether there is enough evidence to describe the situation in Tigray, Ethiopia as a genocide. Kim Yi Dion, founder and co-host of Ufahamu, and Rachel Beatty Rydell, the other co-host, spoke with Farm Policy Playlist to tell us more about the episode and how the series came to be. Hi, I'm Kim Yi Dion, a professor of political science at UC Riverside and the founder and co-host of Ufahamu Africa, a weekly podcast with episodes posted each Saturday. And I'm Rachel Beatty-Riedel, a professor of government at Cornell University and director of the Naudi Center for International Studies and co-host with Kim of Ufahamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics. Now, life and politics is about as broad a theme as one can have, and we've really had an immense range of guests on, which I think quite fits our personalities in terms of wanting to know and think broadly about different features. And we regularly feature scholars and thinkers with expertise on elections and politics in a range of African countries, to be sure. But we've also talked about such a range of other topics in addition, from Rob Till, Nijai Paoli, and Priscilla Sampare, who in different episodes, each talked about children's books they had published. And for example, Kave Mui Morangi, who spoke about activism in Germany to formally recognize the genocide committed in what is today Namibia. So Kim, can you tell us a bit more about the podcast origins and how it came to be? Sure. Back in 2016, I wanted to make access to information about the African continent free and accessible to everyone, not just the people who managed to apply and get admitted to the colleges or universities where many of us teach, but to everyday folks, anyone who has an internet connection and can connect to the podcast website and download and listen to whatever they were interested in or wanted to learn more about. Now, today... I think the mission of the podcast has evolved, and I want to make sure that we aren't just providing a space for people to get access to information about Africa and and life and politics on the continent, but that they have a lot of different voices bringing them that information or, or their various perspectives. And so 
some of the guests, of course, have, as you've said, are scholars who have done award-winning research and they're leaders in their field. But we also have artists and creators and activists because we see, as you said, a range of ways of knowing and, and different ways of learning about the continent. You know, the process of learning is also something that really brought me to the podcast because that's one thing that I love so much about it. I'm always learning. I'm always learning from our guests and I have the opportunity to ask them any questions I want, which I think is it's really quite a beautiful opportunity. And the incredible experts, for example, on Africa that Kim and I individually interact with daily, weekly, through the conferences we attend, the scholars we're reading, the experts on the continent that we're listening to, the speakers we invite to pass through our universities and, and centers. We wanted to create, I think, platforms, channels that further their voices so that we're not just speaking to a room five or 10 or 20 people who happen to be in that geographic location, but that we can make these experts' voices available to new audience. And I think there's a second component that we bring to it, which is to put that into context, right? That we use our analytical lenses to curate the set of guests, to bring into conversation news events and cultural happenings and put it into context in a way that our listeners, both who are policy experts and fellow scholars and introductory students all gain something from listening. And the episode that we're grateful to share with foreign policy listeners tries to take both of these initiatives, offering some insights into something timely, but also providing some deep contextual knowledge that can have a lasting impact as well. And it's an interview that I did with Dr. Goyatim Gebreluel. In seeing reports about the conflict in Ethiopia, we at Ufahamu Africa wanted to give our listeners something akin to an explainer on the conflict. And we wanted the person that we invited to share this information to be someone who's really knowledgeable, not just in a scholarly way, which is the case here. You know, this is a person who was a PhD from Cambridge and studied politics in um, the Horn of Africa, but also someone who's deeply connected to the events unfolding. And that means that they have access to information that we outside of Ethiopia may not have access to. And so we hope you'll find this episode illuminating. Thanks for listening. That was Kimmy Dion and Rachel Beatty Rydell. And here now is episode 117 of Ufahamu Africa, the genocide in Tigray, Ethiopia. Welcome to Ufahamu Africa. I'm Kimmy Dion, your host. In this episode, we wanted to draw attention to the ongoing conflict in Ethiopia, which some are calling a genocide against Tigrayan people. Earlier this week, I spoke with Dr. Goyatum Gebreluel, the managing director of Hateta Policy Research, which conducts analysis and provides advisory services on political economy, security policy, and regional affairs in the Horn of Africa and Red Sea regions. Goyatum earned his PhD in political science from the University of Cambridge and previously taught at the University of London and the University of Mikkel. His publications and commentaries on security, political economy, foreign policy, Ethiopia, and the Horn of Africa have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, and The Washington Quarterly. I asked him this week to describe and contextualize the conflict in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, and I want to let our listeners know that my conversation with Goyatim includes discussion of sexual violence and may not be suitable for all audiences. 
Rachel and I are skipping our news wrap this week, but on ufamuafrica.com, we'll include links to things we read and found interesting this week, including the latest Afrobarometer Monkey Cage collaboration by Joe Asunka and Carolyn Logan connecting citizens' access to government budgets and their perceptions of corruption. An essay in The Economist saying Somaliland deserves international recognition, and a Human Rights Watch report on how Sudan's armed forces are using excessive lethal force against peaceful protesters gathering in Khartoum to commemorate victims of the 2019 crackdown. As we near the end of Season 5, we want to invite our listeners to share their good news with us so that we can share it in our season closer. For example, we just learned that our friend and colleague and guest in Episode 102, Noah Nathan, earned tenure. Congratulations, Noah. So reach out to us via Twitter or send us an email at ufahamuafrica at gmail.com and tell us your good news so we can share it with our listeners. Now let's go to my conversation with Goyatum. Hi, my name is Goyatum Gebelu. I'm a researcher on Ethiopian and Horn of Africa politics. Thank you for joining us this week to get our listeners a better understanding of what's happening in Tigray, the northernmost region of Ethiopia, which sits on the border with Eritrea. Now, to give our listeners some context, what analysts are now calling a civil war began in Tigray in late 2020 when Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed sent federal troops into the region for a military operation against the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. Um, the northern region's ruling party. Now, the TPLF was prominent in national politics for decades as a powerful party in the ruling coalition, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF. Though its position of prominence has declined since 2012, the year when former TPLF leader and Ethiopian Prime Minister Melis Zenawi died in office. For the last few months across Ethiopia, ethnic Tigrayans have been harassed, arrested and suspended from their jobs. Thousands of people are reported to have been killed in the conflict, nearly 2 million people have been displaced, and more than 5 million people will be in need of food assistance because of the conflict's impact on food supply and distribution. It is rare, but there are even a few articles in the international media referencing genocide in reporting on Tigray, documenting stories of ethnically motivated violence, including sexual violence. So, Gabrielle, what I what I would like to know is what beyond this summary do you think our listeners should know about what's happening in Tigray right now? What have I, or you know even what have I said that you think needs correction or more explanation? Um, thank you. So I would just add a couple of more uh, points. Uh, first of all, I would say um, at this point, um, I think the evidence um, for the fact that what's going on is a genocide is is uh, very. Um, convincing. Um, I would cite a couple of, uh, you know, patterns in the violence that indicates this. Uh, the first is um, the extent of and nature of the sexual violence. So um, rape has been uh, systematically uh, employed as a weapon of war in this, in this, uh, in this conflict. And what we're seeing is that the intent seemed to be to destroy the reproductive capacity of women. We say this, uh, first of all, because of the uh, testimonies that, are, that have been uh, gathered from uh, the victims. They say that the soldiers that rape them tell them that uh, their intention is to prevent them from uh, giving birth to Tigrayans in the future. And the nature of the rape also, the violence that is committed after 
the rape uh, also indicates that the intention is to um, physically and mentally uh, destroy uh, the woman that they're raping. This seems to be a, a clear systematic way of, of uh, destroying the reproductive capacity of, um, of the society. Um, the other indicator um, that leads us to say that this is a genocide is the use of uh, starvation as a weapon of war. So um, throughout the last uh, six months, the soldiers have systematically been destroying uh, the seeds uh, and agricultural equipment of uh, farmers. They've been preventing farmers from uh, farming and they're preventing aid agencies to reach uh, the civilian population. And this um, has, you know, the, the, the testimonies we have of this is not simply from uh, uh, Tigrayans, but it's also from uh, aid agencies, international uh, uh, aid agencies that are operating in Tigray. So uh, when, when you put these um, facts, uh, uh, these patterns together, um, it seems to be the case that uh, the intention is to exterminate uh, parts or the entire uh, population of Tigray for political reasons. The other thing I would point out, which I think uh, is often overlooked in the media, is um, the politics behind this genocide. Um, it's often presented as you know, some sort of apolitical event, some sort of uh, you know, violence without uh, a clear political logic um, when you read analysis uh, of this uh, in the media, in the international media. Um, but what you have to do is you have to look at it uh, in, a, in a broader historical context. Uh, when you do that, you see that um, this type of violence is recurrent in Ethiopia. This is not the first time that genocide is taking place in Ethiopia. Um, in fact, this seems to be some sort of pathological characteristic to this violence. Um, ever since the state of Ethiopia was uh, established in the 19th century, uh, mass atrocities against civilians have been uh, regularly occurring uh, events uh, throughout history. So you have two types of periods here. Um, one is the period before the age of nationalism, where... Um, that part of East Africa um, was led by uh, different empires, and the biggest one of them being the Abyssinian Empire. Um, in that period, in the 19th century and uh, early 20th century, you have mass atrocities being committed against civilians as a way of punishing uh, rebellions or as a way of subjugating people. And that usually involved uh, cutting off uh, breasts of women, hands of uh, of the men, cutting off legs, and these types of uh, uh, actions. But it didn't stop there. So in the 20th century, during the communist regime, um, in the 70s and 80s, the communist regime also used starvation as a weapon of war against uh, uh, Eritreans and Tigrayans in particular. And it led to a man-made famine in which one million people died. Fast forward today, and um, you see the same type of violence and the same type of tactics uh, being used by Abiy Ahmed in um, Tigray, um, where, you know, in addition to starvation, you now also have uh, uh, extensive forms of uh, sexual uh, violence and even, you know, the systematic destruction of cultural heritage, um, which indicates that uh, ethnicity and and politics is, is, a, is a big driver, not just military um, 
strategy, essentially. So you bring up Abiy Ahmed. So um, now Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed was the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize winner. And, um, and that award promised, gave some vision of the potential to bring peace, justice, and prosperity to all Ethiopians. And there was optimism that he would bring an end to longstanding tensions and unify the nation. Many saw, for example, his cooling of the tensions with neighboring Eritrea as a sign of real change in Ethiopia. But events since his Nobel Award, including the ongoing civil war in Tigray, have quelled that early optimism. Using Eritrean relations as an example, many of the atrocities that have been committed in Tigray during the civil war have been committed by Eritrean soldiers. For months, Prime Minister Abiy and the Eritrean government denied that Eritrean troops had even entered Tigray. Though both governments publicly committed to the withdrawal of Eritrean troops after finally admitting, um, there's no proof that that withdrawal is happening. Now, in a recent article that you wrote with Mulubayene in African Arguments, you argue that, quote, any probe into war crimes that involves the African Union or the government's own Human Rights Commission stands little chance of being effective. Now, why did you and Mulu argue that a UN-led investigation was needed? And and what would it mean to involve external actors for the long-term peace efforts in the region? So we um, opposed the involvement of the AU and the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission uh, based on their partisan history uh, in this uh, conflict. So initially uh, in the war, um, the African Union uh, Commission uh, chair, uh, Musa Faki embraced the war uh, very overtly, justifying it, saying that this was within the uh, sovereign rights of Ethiopia to, you know, uh, crush the uh, rebellion uh, in the north, as he called it. Um, and this, I think, uh, was problematic uh, for many reasons. Uh, first of all, this was not um, a domestic affair. The involvement of Eritrea makes it an international conflict. Secondly, um, the mass atrocities uh, being committed also means that one cannot uh, hide this under uh, the concept of of sovereignty. Um, And the African Union, I think, was uh, the actor that uh, had the biggest moral responsibility and was the closest and could potentially have been the most effective in um, uh, stopping the conflict early on, um, early on in November. But Instead, uh, Musafaki um, embraced the war and, and encouraged Abiy Ahmed to continue um, with his uh, conflict. Now, this I don't think African Union would have done this with any other country in Africa. Um, uh, African Union has a long history of um, treating Ethiopia differently. Uh, it doesn't, I cannot recall a moment uh, throughout its existence where it actually confronted Ethiopia on its human rights uh, and democratic deficiencies. And many people attribute this to um, the fact that the African Union's headquarters is in, uh, is in Addis Ababa. And that, yes, and that gives uh, them uh, uh, leverage that other African countries do not have. Um, so based on this history, we thought it, we, it would be uh, very unreasonable um, to involve uh, an actor that has uh, so 
uh, vocally embraced uh, one side in the conflict uh, to be involved in the in the investigation. And the same uh, problem with the uh, the same problem applies to the Ethiopian Human Rights uh, Commission. Um, the commissioner um, Daniel Bekele um, has, since he's been appointed by uh, Abiy Ahmed uh, as as uh, as commissioner, has uh, displayed a very um, selective and almost curated reporting pattern when it comes to um, human rights violations in Ethiopia. Um, some of the patterns that we see are um, that the Human Rights Commission is very quick to investigate cases that the government can use um, for propaganda purposes. So there was a, a massacre in um, a place called Mykadra in Tigray uh, a few weeks into the war. And it took the Human Rights Commission just a couple of days to send a, a team uh, to investigate that uh, massacre. And within two weeks, they concluded that um, the perpetrators were from the Tigrayan side. And the government used this as a, um, as, a, as a propaganda tool to mobilize people for the war. On the other hand, there was um, a major massacre in Aksum that has now been fairly well covered by uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and so forth, um, in which hundreds of uh, people were massacred um, uh, for several days by Eritrean and Ethiopian troops. Um, um, I think it was uh, late November. Now, this was, you know, a lot of people were talking about this. There were a great deal of evidence that this had happened uh, early on, but this was ignored by uh, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission until Amnesty International made a report about this in, in February, in which case, you know, after that happened, they they immediately said that they would investigate. And this is, uh, you know, uh, the, the pattern in which um, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission has been uh, curating the reports that it, may, it, it produces in order to cover up or, or benefit uh, the government. Could wrapping up the global economy be as simple as one change, empowering women in the workplace? Studies have shown countries could potentially increase economic growth by more than 25%. So why isn't it happening? To get there, you have to look at what's wrong with the system. Hi, I'm Rena Nainen, and I'm excited to share with you The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a new podcast from Foreign Policy, sharing stories of women creating change through economic empowerment. We'll go to Kenya to see how a new approach to franchising childcare centers is changing the lives of both mothers and female entrepreneurs. And I think if we can start framing this as an economic issue, that childcare will unleash this potential for women to work, we can completely boost the economy. In India, a push to bring more visibility to women working informally or under the table. It's creating pressure to provide benefits and security to these women. Data is the evidence, really, to showcase uh, what's really happening. And in Uganda, women are finding greater economic freedom by pooling their money and finding strength as a group and challenging gender dynamics within their own homes. What was amazing was that over the course of these household dialogues, they saw tangible changes in men's savings behavior and men's communication. Critical analysis, ideas for emerging stronger, and stories of perseverance from real women around the globe. Please subscribe to Foreign Policy's Hero, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a new podcast with the support of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. 
Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. So we're now talking in May, which is three months after these um, reports of what happened in action have been public. And, and has the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission written any, issued any report? Nothing uh, substantial. Um, so, you know, the moment they cannot hide uh, the atrocities anymore, um, they sort of halfway recognize <laughs> um, these uh, that these atrocities have, have have taken place, and they say that they're going to look into it. So, for example, my cadre, which they uh, you know concluded uh, were committed by Tigrayans exclusively in uh, in November, now they tell us that. Um, they've also come across evidence that suggests that the government was also uh, involved or that the uh, Amhara uh, militias were involved. Uh, and this is, you know, six, seven months later. And um, apparently they've been sitting on this information but not uh, reported it. So it's a very, um, I have to say, it's a very sophisticated PR machinery that they're running um, because they managed to produce just enough to be seen as somewhat credible a human rights organization uh, internationally, but they produce um, or, they, or they, they, they manage to sort of conceal as much as possible uh, of the government's atrocities uh, for as long right. as possible. And um, when people aren't paying attention to it anymore. Right? Yeah, and, and, and that's a much more effective way of, of covering up atrocities than simply denying them from the outset or just, you know. Right. Uh, to say, well, there needs to be more investigation and yeah. So, so because of this, they have now also actually had uh, been given the opportunity to conduct investigations together with the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Commission because they've been man- they've, they've managed to create this image of a somewhat responsible uh, human rights organization. So now, simultaneous with the violence that's ongoing in Tigray. Ethiopia is also facing armed uprisings in its western region, where the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is located, the GERD. Um, The dam is a development project that could potentially solve Ethiopia's electricity shortfall, um, but it is also expected to affect water supply to the countries and people further down the Nile River, specifically Egypt and Sudan. Now, progress on the dam has thus elevated tensions with these two countries. In your doctoral thesis, you examined Ethiopia's strategies for managing regional conflicts, focusing on Ethiopia's rivalries with Sudan, Eritrea, and Somalia between 1991 and 2018. Now, in light of your research, how would you put the civil war in Tigray and the foreign policy challenges associated with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam in a broader historical context? What are some continuities and changes in Ethiopia's foreign policy? Uh, yes, I think to answer that question, we need to go back to what sort of national strategy Ethiopia was employing um, prior to the coming of this government. 
the previous Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, uh, EPRDF, pursued a developmental state uh, national strategy from 2002 to 2018. That uh, strategy um, was a reflection of the domestic developmental state uh, economic model that they were pursuing. And um, the priorities of that strategy uh, or, or its uh, premise was the, the understanding that Ethiopia was a poor and fragile state that needed to uh, prioritize economic development and international internal stability. So um, based on this premise, um, they concluded that they needed to manage their regional rivalries um, through diplomatic means or by establishing diplomatic ties uh, extensively in the region and avoid military confrontation because of uh, its impact for internal stability, which would again have an impact on uh, economic development. So this led to isolating Eritrea instead of uh, fighting a second war. Um, and in relation to Egypt and the Nile, um, this led to you know, about uh, five, ten years of diplomatic work to bring uh, or to uh, strengthen their uh, alliance with Sudan and persuade Sudan to support Ethiopia's stance um, on the Nile. And uh, once they've had built that uh, you know, diplomatic network in the region, and particularly with Sudan, there was very little Egypt could do to stop Ethiopia from uh, pursuing its uh, goal on the Nile. Now, Abiy Ahmed changed that uh, significantly. Uh, once he came to power, he reverted back to Ethiopia's traditional way of looking at foreign policy and national security. Like so many uh, leaders before him, he simply took it for granted that Ethiopia was this uh, big state that deserved recognition and diplomatic capital was not, in his view, something that had to be cultivated and maintained um, regularly. He simply took it for granted that this was something that could be exercised. So he uh, gave up a lot of those or he uh, neglected many of those regional ties that the EPRDF had built. And the crucial one he neglected was Sudan. Sudan was key for everything. So um, instead, he found uh, or he made a, an alliance with Isafork and Eritrea and Mohamed um, uh, Abdullah Farmajo of uh, Somalia and sort of excluded the other states in the region. And when that happened, then Sudan had no incentive to side with Ethiopia anymore. So they increasingly became closer to Egypt. And there was this uh, area called Al-Fashaga uh, in Sudan, which had been occupied by um, Ethiopian farmers for many decades. Due to the good relations that Ethiopia had with Sudan under the EPRDF, um, they'd come to an agreement that the farmers could remain there, but Ethiopia would recognize uh, Sudan's sovereignty of that territory. Now... Abiy Ahmed, when he came to power, he had this, uh, as I said, conception of Ethiopia as this regional hegemon that could do whatever it wanted. Um, when the war in Tigray began, uh, I think Sudan moved its troops into that area. And Abiy Ahmed became furious because he said that that was Ethiopian territory. That's still the um, uh, claim of the government. And then, of course, relations with Sudan totally collapsed and... Sudan, in fact, began laying new claims, new territorial claims that we haven't heard of before on Ethiopia. 
So, um, yeah, what you see is this move away from that developmental state uh, strategy of restraint and focusing on internal stability and managing rivals through diplomacy to one of uh, hubris and um, status-seeking uh, militarism. And, of course, the problem is that Ethiopia does not have the material um, basis uh, to exercise that type of hegemony that uh, Abiy Ahmed and the Ethiopian elite imagine that, uh, that they have. So uh, we see that uh, uh, in, the, in the conflict with Sudan, it doesn't have the capacity actually to resist Sudan or to uh, push them uh, out of that territory. And um, this has also incentivized Egypt and Sudan to be more, much more confrontational uh, on the Nile question. So I think uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> that does not, it does not, um, it does not strike me as someone who wins a Nobel Peace Prize would, would, um, would act in such a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Now here in the United States, where I'm based, there have been a number of demonstrations in solidarity with the people of Tigray, for example, in Boston, Seattle, Las Vegas, and Washington, D.C., I should note also that um, there are Ethiopians in the diaspora here in the U.S. and in Canada that are protesting in support of the Ethiopian government as well. Um, now, the political situation in Ethiopia and its deadly consequences for civilians raised concern throughout the Ethiopian diaspora and in the broader international community. Um, I'm curious to hear what you think are potential routes that people, including our listeners, um, who want to advocate from afar um, in in ending the violence and the genocide against Tigrayan people? I think the most effective way is uh, contacting, um, particularly uh, you know, Americans in America, have a, a very important uh, role to play here. Um, contacting local uh, or their Congress and and and. Uh, representatives and, and, and senators uh, is a great help. Um, those that have special influence, if they can make that public, um, is also immensely important, uh, an immensely important uh, contribution. Um, uh, anyone else, I think, you know, as much as you can, if you can uh, draw attention to this on, on social media and, uh, uh, and in any other way you can, uh, uh, that's uh, these are great contributions, I think. But the most important is actually uh, talk to local uh, representatives. And I know that you've been very active on Twitter, sharing information about what's happening. Are there particular hashtags on Twitter that you think our listeners should be following? Yeah, the main one is uh, Tigray genocide. That's the one uh, everyone is using. And um, if you follow that, and if you follow. Uh, some advocacy groups like uh, Tighat, that's T-G-H-A-T, and uh, Omna. You will uh, keep yourself updated on, uh, on the latest on that front. Great. Thank you so much for your time this week and for sharing your insights with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And that was episode 117, The Genocide in Tigray, Ethiopia, from Ufahamu, Africa. My thanks to Kim Yi Dion and Rachel Bailey Rydell and Ufahamu Africa for sharing their podcast with us. And that's all for Farm Policy Playlist this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. 
And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.